Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. Happy 2022. I hope it's still 2021 as I'm writing this. And 2022 is only a few days old when it drops. Hopefully nothing too dire has happened in that brief period to make it appear that 2022 has hold, told 2020 and 2021 to hold its beer. Today we continue working through the Bibliotheca. We are up to Book 2, Chapter 7, and we're not done with Heracles yet. I'm working from the Fraser translation, which is easily found online. When we last left Heracles, he had defeated Troy. We pick him up sailing home, or at least attempting to. Hera, as usual, doesn't make it easy for him and sends storms. This pisses Zeus off, so he hangs her from Olympus. And if you think our author is going to give more detail on that point, well, prepare to be disappointed. Heracles sails on to Kos, where the locals think he's a pirate and throws stones. It doesn't stop him. After night falls, he forces his way into the city and kills King Eurypylus, who just so happens to be Poseidon's son. Heracles is wounded, but Zeus rescues him because Heracles is his favorite son. Athena then helps Heracles go to Phlegra, where he helps the gods defeat the giants in that war that maybe we covered in an earlier episode. Who can remember anymore? This text is sprawling. Next, Heracles builds an army and marches against Augeas. Remember the man with the really dirty stables? Him. Augeas hears about the pending war and appoints Eurytus and Catetus as generals. They're some sort of conjoined twins, although exactly how conjoined depends on the source. At any rate, their father is Actor, who happens to be Augeas' brother, making Augeas their uncle. But before Heracles reaches Augeas' land, he gets sick, so he calls for a truce. But when they realize it's because Heracles is sick, they attack and get the upper hand. Heracles retreats. He gets his revenge, though, when they're on their way to a festival. He waylays them and kills them, and then he marches on Elis, where he finally kills Augeas and gives the kingdom to Phileas. Then he founds the Olympics and builds several altars, like you do. Having dealt with Augeas, Heracles next marches on Pelus, which goes much more smoothly. He kills Neleus and all of Neleus' sons, except for Nestor, because he wasn't home, Hades had sided with Neleus, and Heracles manages to wound his immortal uncle in the process. Next, Heracles heads for the sons of Hippocoon because he's mad at them. For one thing, they'd sided with Neleus, and for another, they killed uh, Lachimenes' son. You see, this boy had been looking at their palace, and their dog came running out, and the boy threw a stone at it, which pissed them off so much that Hippocoon's sons beat the boy to death. Not defending the whole throwing the stone at the dog thing, but that is an excessive reaction. The dog wasn't hurt. Anyway, Heracles wants to avenge that death. He asks Cepheus to join his army, but Cepheus is concerned that leaving his own city will leave it open to attack, so he refuses. Heracles has a solution. His half-sister Athena gave him a bronze jar with a lock of Medusa's hair inside. He gives the jar to Cepheus, who gives it to his daughter Sterope, along with instructions on how to use it to turn any enemy armies into stone. Cepheus changes his mind, and he and his sons join the fight. 
Cepheus should have stuck with his instincts because they all die. So does Iphicles, Heracles' brother. But Heracles is happy because Hippocoon and his sons are also killed. Heracles hands the kingdom over to Tyndareus. Heracles then rapes Augi, the daughter of Aelius. She has a baby and hides it in Athena's temple, but Aelius finds out about the baby and exposes it on Mount Parthenius. It's rescued by a doe and then some shepherds who name it Elephios. Aelius sends Augi off to be sold into slavery because her life sucks, but instead, Nauplius, Aelius's agent in the sale, gives her to Prince Tuthras, who marries her, so... It could have been worse, I suppose. I mean, at least she's been forced into a relationship where she has some status. Anyway, we're not done with Heracles yet. Now he reaches Caledon, where he decides he wants to marry Deonyra, the daughter of Oinus. Achilles, who is a shapeshifter, wants to marry her too, and her husband is decided through a wrestling contest, which Heracles, of course, wins. In that wrestling match, Achilles had taken the form of a bull, and Heracles broke off one of his horns. He gets a new one from Almathea, the daughter of Hamus, who happens to have a proper horn of plenty. So, you know, it's really a trade-up. Then Heracles teams up with the Caledonians to march against the Thesprotians. He does this in proper ancient fashion, raping and pillaging, and one of his victims of the former is Princess Astyache, who then gives birth to Tlepolemus. I'm really stumbling over some of these Greek names. Now, do you remember when Heracles was staying with Thespius? who sent each of his 50 daughters to sleep with Heracles, and Heracles thought they were all the same woman? Well, he did indeed have some children from those encounters. And Heracles now sends word to Thespius that three of those sons should go to Thebes, 40 should go found a colony in Sardinia, but the rest, seven, you know, they can stay with Thespius. Did I say children? Yeah, I probably should have said sons, because girl children are for weaklings, not heroes. After all of this, Heracles has a feast with Oinus, during which the son of Archeteles is helping wash his hands, and Heracles punches him so hard that he kills him. This is chalked up as an accident, which I really can't figure out how, because how do you accidentally punch someone who is pouring water over your hands? And more than that, how do you accidentally punch them hard enough to kill them? But it's deemed an accident, so Achilles forgives Heracles. Heracles, on the other hand, says that he still should be punished somehow, which, yeah, and he goes into voluntary exile to Trachis. He takes Naira with him, which may or may not turn out to be a good choice, because this is how they meet the centaur Nessus. Nessus runs a ferry service. Heracles sees no reason in paying for two fares when he can cross the river all by himself, but he does entrust Deonyra to the centaur, which, yeah, no. Nessus tries to rape Deonyra, but Heracles sees this and shoots Nessus through the heart. Before he dies, Nessus tells Deonyra that she can use his blood as a love potion, so she collects it and keeps it in a little vial close to her heart. They continue to travel along, reaching the land of the Dryopes. Heracles meets a man named Theodamus, who has a pair of bulls. He slaughters one, and they have a feast. I really don't know who the he is in this instance, and the footnote is not helping me figure that out, so I have no idea if Heracles steals one of these bulls, or if it's just a friendly thing. 
Anyway, eventually Heracles and presumably Deonira reach Trachis, and Heracles teams up with the king there to go back and conquer the Dryopes. Heracles then allies himself with Agimios, the king of the Dorians. You see, the Lapiths had declared war on the Dorians, so the king asked Heracles to help, which he was happy to do, killing all of the enemy leaders and then handing the country over to Agimios. Heracles kills the king of the Dryopes and all of his children because they were allies of the Lapiths, and any ally of Heracles' friend's enemies is an enemy of Heracles. Diagram that sentence. Uh, I'll wait. Heracles is then passing by Atonus when one of Ares's sons challenges him to single combat. Bad idea? Heracles kills him, of course. And then King Amentor of Ormenium raises arms against Heracles to prevent passage, so Heracles kills him too. Heracles gets back to Trachis and raises an army to march against Eurytus, which is another successful campaign. He plunders the city and captures Princess Aeoli. On the way home, he stops at Canaum to build an altar to Zeus. He sends his herald, Lycus, to Trachis to fetch his best clothes so that he can make a proper sacrifice at this new altar. Is this starting to sound familiar from Greek tragedy? It should. Lycus tells Deonira about Aeoli, who decides that Heracles is more in love with the young princess than he is with her, and given his history, can you really blame her? So she uses the so-called love potion from Nessus's blood, smeared on Heracles' tunic before sending the clothing to him, and, of course, Nessus was lying. The not-actually-a-love potion does the trick, causing enough pain that Heracles throws Lycus off a cliff before trying to free himself of the poisoned soaked tunic. But he's not dead yet, so he's carried off to Trachis. When Deonira hears what she's done, she hangs herself. With his dying breath, Heracles tells Helus, his oldest son by Deonira, to marry Aeoli when they're both old enough. Okay, not quite his dying breath, because he's still not dead. He goes to Mount Oeta, builds a funeral pyre, climbs on top of the funeral pyre, and then he asks his friends to set it on fire. At first, no one is willing, but a passerby agrees to do so. His name is Poeas, and Heracles gives him his bow in thanks. Once the pyre is alight, there's a clap of thunder, and that's how we know that Heracles becomes immortal. And he and Hera become friends, and she even lets him marry her daughter Hebe, and they have two sons, Alexiaris and Anakidus. Heracles also has a lot of children all of whom are named, and you can read that list yourself if you feel so inclined. And that is the end of Heracles, as well as the end of Book 2, Chapter 7. Everyone wanted a piece of Heracles. His story sprawls because it is made up of any number of local legends about him. So when you try to put them all together into a unified story, well, you get the Bibliotheca. It's kind of like if the Brothers Grimm had tried to turn all of the folk tales they collected into a unified story. And as with all of these ancient stories, all these tales of Heracles are frustrating because we never hear from the women. Okay, well, maybe a bit when we read the tragedies about him, but that is a different course. This is myth, not tragedy. In this text, specifically, we 
really don't get women's perspectives. Um, and so we definitely don't get Day and Iris perspective or Iolis or even Hebe's. This is not Disney's Hercules, who is true to Megara until the end. It's a delightful movie. I love it. It is so wrong on so many <laughs> counts in the Her- Her- Hercules, Heracles story, depending on whether you're using his Latin or Greek name. Anyway, changing subject. I am intrigued by the trope of building your own funeral pyre and then climbing on top of it. We see Heracles do it in this chapter. In the Aeneid, we see Dido do the same. And I also can't help but think about the end of Gotterdammerung when Brunhilde also builds a funeral pyre and then climbs on top of it, which I also always hear described in Anna Russell's voice. Check out the blog if you don't get that reference. I have shared. It is delightful. But I digress. This is a podcast about humanism and antiquity, after all, not British comedians. What's interesting about this build-your-own-funeral-pyre trope is that it shows a different view on on death than we have today, Um, or at least that's more common today. There are still cultures, obviously, that use pyres and cremation, uh, but building-your-own-funeral-pyre thing that... um, In the case of Dido and Brunhilde, we we don't see people who are on death's doorstill right? Heracles is. His actions are just bringing on the inevitable a little bit sooner. And given how much pain he's in, you really can't blame him. Let's think of that one as an assisted suicide, right? Um, But Dido and Brunhilde build their pyres in the fit of what could be deemed major depressive episodes over men too. I mean, seriously, that is, ladies, come on. And I know the difference is obvious, right? Heracles is a man. And Dido and Brunhilde, yeah, not so much. But it's not a trope that I'd thought much about until working on this episode. Now I'm wondering, what are the other places where we see this in ancient mythology? Is this something that crosses cultures? I mostly know about myths and folktales from Europe because that's the culture in which I was raised. But I I am curious about whether we see this elsewhere in the world. What stands out to you in this chapter? Pop over to the blog and share or share some other build-your-own-funeral-pyre stories. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL, of course, is in the show notes. You can also find me on Patreon as triumvirclio if you feel so inclined. In the next episode, we'll cover Seneca's Troades, or Trojan Women. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.